Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Access Ninja podcast. We are a bi-weekly podcast that's every other week where we talk about accessibility through the lens of technology, life, and design. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Rachel. <laughs> hey, Rachel, how are you doing today? Uh, now much better. <laughs> <laughs> I started the year in the hospital, but we're all back in track now. That's good. That's good. So everything's, you're doing good. You're feeling better. Maybe not your best, but feeling better, right? Yeah, no, I'm feeling much better. And, you know, there's a, there's always a silver lining. You get to the hospital in January, then like you, you reach your deductible pretty quick. And there you go. So you're set for the year. Um, wow. <laughs> Well, I, another thing, too, I opened this up the way we've been opening it before. I said, welcome to the Access Ninja podcast. We are a bi-weekly podcast, but we're only really a roughly bi-weekly podcast at this point. <laughs> yeah, hey, stuff happens. <laughs> stuff happens. Ho hospital things. Um, that's not the reason why necessarily we, we missed we missed before. Not, not When we're delayed, by the way, it doesn't mean that something else is happening. It's just things, life happens, we move around, we try to get this out. Uh, as frequent we can, we think our hey, audience... Mexico happened. That's why we didn't do the other one. That's right. <laughs> the we... internet was awful over there. So, uh, so yeah, thank you, um, the people who are listening, for sticking around with us here. But speaking of it, we are in a new year. And uh, just to start us out with, I was going to check with you, Rachel, if you have had any uh, New Year's resolutions. I've got some stuff I'm working on, but how about you? Well... <clears throat> You know, officially, my year started yesterday. <laughs> I had to do a restart. Um, yeah, I don't have, you know, I, I used to do resolutions and I, I didn't really keep them. So this year I'm trying something different. I decided to create sort of like a, a theme for my year and a sort of like a a more like end goal type of resolution not like you know it's not like i want to lose weight or i'm gonna go to the gym at something more like um so here's uh my theme for the year is control that what i can and what i cannot uh let go <laughs> so that's the theme for this year i've been practicing that a little bit already for six months but um, that is my main theme. And then around that theme, I'm going to each month sort of tackle uh, a different uh, aspect of it. So, and of course, I want to uh, launch my blog, which is quote unquote launched, but not really. <laughs> I mean, it's on my on my editing software, which is having some technology issues here, but it should be on air. And uh, I also want to start my, uh, you know, my personal podcast on personal growth and that kind of stuff. But other than that, it's it's very loose. I don't have like dates, or I don't want to have, a, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm falling out of the horse per se. Well, if people want to get into this blog, which you said is going to be coming out shortly, what what your you what URL? What address are they going to go visit? Get make let's let's make this a proper plug. <laughs> All right. Well, it's going to be the giveitagozone.com. 
give it a go zone.com yes is and, that where the podcast is going to be as well or is that uh to be determined uh no probably it will be there too um the the the, the podcast name is the give it a go show so um it's going to all be hosted in this give it a go theme uh i started that last year when i was giving it a go on <laughs> writing my book and and doing a couple of other things so i decided that you know that really kind of summarizes my attitude in life it's you know you, you don't know until you try it so you can tell yourself that you can't do this and you can't do that, but how do you really know if you don't really properly try it? Because a lot of people tell me, oh yeah, Rich, I try this, I try that. I wait, but did you have a systematic way to try? So the give it a go for me became this systematic way to try and track and be able to tell, okay, did it really fail? Because you know, we know that before success, there is like a million failures. So when do you know how to quit or, or when do you know it, it's not really for you, you know? And, and so that was kind of my question is, uh, how, how do you try and how do you know when you tried enough? Very good. So people can check out that give it a go zone.com. That's coming soon, coming soon. Yeah. Though, right? it's, not, it's not, it's not up right now. It's, it's coming soon, right? Yes. Right. Well, that sounds pretty exciting. That's, a, that's a good goal. So. I'm not usually one for having a specific New Year's resolution. I, I take advantage of the New Year's as a way of sort of identifying what I'm working on and committing to continuing. And so I've had one particular thing I've been working on pretty hard, which has been um, working on uh, task management. Specifically, I've been I've been really getting in deep uh, with a particular software program, uh, which is OmniFocus. Uh, OmniFocus is a app that you can get for the iPhone and the iPad, and it's also uh, a, a Mac app. Uh, and they're working on a web version for Windows users who want to use it, so that they'll have a web login. But that's still in beta. And I've been using that to try to keep organized. Now, a lot of people ask me too because I've been doing a pretty good job in the last two or three months. I've been really focusing on this, and I'm just committing to continue into the new year. A lot of people have been asking me what, like, what, what my what my my secret is and and omnifocus is my software program but the secret is not the software the software is just a tool to get me there uh, so i've been reading a lot of books and i'm following something closer to david allen's getting things done uh, which is like a inbox that you process and break things into projects and break them into contexts and then kind of tackle them piece by piece and so that's been going really good. It's helped me do a lot of things. I've got a proper morning routine now that I have finally committed to that has helped me out with a lot of self-care stuff I, I sometimes forget about or sometimes I'll skip something like, oh, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to brush my teeth this morning or I'm not going to do X thing. And I kind of those important little things in life that you skip over, I'm, I've now been able to hit because they're part of my to-do list and I wake up in the morning and I look at my OmniFocus and it tells me to do it and I go, well, okay, well, if OmniFocus says so, I'll do it. <laughs> oh, OmniPower. <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been really, really good for me and I, I've been able to feel like I'm accomplishing the projects and the goals that I have easier. The, the one downside when somebody asks me, you know, how, you know, 
oh, that you you seem to be doing a good job at this. How do you do it? And what I want to do is I want to assign them like three books. I'm like, well, you're going to want to read David Allen's Getting Things Done. And then if you're going to use OmniFocus, you're going to need to use the Creating a Workflow with OmniFocus uh, book that will really help you learn it. And, and uh, oh, 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 oh uh, The Power of Habits is also a good book. And that's the one I that interpreted. I just finished that one. <laughs> it's really good. So it's not very exciting when to someone when they say, "Oh, oh, what are you? How are you doing it?" And you're like, "Read these three books and then learn this software program." But it's been worth the time and the effort, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, what my what my new year looks like with uh, my new commitment to uh, self uh, organization and management. Well, you know, my husband would say, "Hey, read it and summarize it for me." <laughs> <laughs> When I say, you have to read this, it's like, yeah, how about you do? And then you summarize it. But, but and, you know, maybe you could have some kind of like quick tips at some point for us. And... I could. I do. When I read one of these books, I tend to take uh, notes. I have a notebook that I, I keep with me. And I take out my notes and I write my notes down. And then when I'm done with my notes, I actually, on the things that are really important that I don't want to forget, I actually turn them into flashcards so I can practice with uh, reinforcing it later. Hey, we should find an accessible way to do something like that because I read a lot, you know, when I'm going to bed or sometimes when I'm washing the dishes and um but I I've been also really wanting to focus down on some books, you know, especially those like, you know, the getting things done or the four hour week of you know, books that actually it's like it's explaining how to do things. And I noticed that, you know, I take notes on notes in, in the phone or in the Mac, but it would be pretty cool if we could develop a, you know, a more like easy and accessible way to, to I don't know, to notate or to highlight things. and Or like the other thing is sometimes I have quotes and I love them, but, you know, I read audio, so it's really hard to retrieve the quotes. Like I had to listen like, I don't know, a gazillion times. And, and even then, sometimes I'm not sure I copied exactly. Well, the, the really nice thing about OmniFocus, which is what I what I use for capturing this, is that you can um, drop something into OmniFocus from Siri really quickly mm -hmm. on the phone. So I'll I'll grab my uh, my phone and I'll activate Siri and say, we, you do, they have something called an inbox. So I'll say, add to my inbox list. And it'll be a new task that I know I need to do or a quote I just heard that I don't want to forget. I'm going to want to write that down. And I, I don't know where I'm going to put it. Am I going to put it in the notes app, which is actually where I keep quotes and thoughts uh, that I like to keep. But I don't want to open the notes app and then add a new note and then make sure it's in there. So I say, hey, add to my inbox, you know, a quote from so-and-so or or fix the uh, the downspout at the, by the garage. That was one recently. I just noticed that was out and I need to go back and do that or buy such and such. And it goes into my inbox list. So it's this little list. And every single morning, it's supposed to be every night, but I really only get to it in the morning. Every morning I open up my OmniFocus inbox and I look at each thing and I decide what I'm going to do with it. And I go, if it's a quote, then I copy it and I paste it into the notes app inside of the quotes folder that I have. If it's a task, then I determine when I'm going to do it. And I set up a reminder and it'll pop up to remind me to do it at that date and time. Or if it's a project, then I put it into a project. So basically I've got like this silo, this inbox 
that I silo everything I need to do into it, and that I have a time of the day that I always go and look at that box and decide what I'm going to do with it. And that's been the most helpful tip. That's a big part of the getting things done process. Awesome. Okay, you convinced me. I mean, we've been talking about Omni for a while because I used to not be accessible back then when I first bought it, and uh, and you've done some looking around. So, um, uh, no, and we know it's some accessible. So we we might bring that up in one of episodes. But uh, yeah, I think that would be awesome because right now I dump everything in my notes, but then I never process them. <laughs> So, you know, it's uh, it's about maybe creating that, have, having a place where I can actually even tell Siri also to capture everything and it would make life so much easier. Well, the secret is the, the, the habit book helped me fill, helped me create a morning and evening habit that I had been trying to create a habit forever. But the, um, uh, the what is that book called? The, is it The Power of Habit? Yeah. The, um and that book uh the power of yes yeah yeah it's the power of habit and it's by um let me get this author name here so because i've been talking about it i better give you some the audience some better information it's by charles uh i don't know if it's duhig or duhig i'm gonna i think is i think it's duhig yeah it's d-u-h-i-g-g uh charles duhig uh and I used that book. I read through that book. It was really good. And it helped me form some new habits, which was my morning habit. And my morning habit involves the inbox and of all, a bunch of other things that I, that I need to do. And I tried for years to create a morning habit. I just never stuck to it uh, or it'd fall off or I just didn't enjoy it. But after reading The Power of Habit and kind of learning from that, I was able to, to kind of break that barrier. I've been doing it for months now. And then since I had a morning habit, I could insert my inbox sorting. So then once I've, once then after I started the inbox sorting, I just got used to putting everything in my inbox. And what felt great about it is that if I had a thought or a feeling that was bothering me, I could drop it in my inbox and let it go, knowing that, that at the very least, it will be remembered and worked on the next day. So I could say, okay, no problem, off my plate for, tonight, for now it'll it'll come back again and you know that power of taking things out of your plate it's it's key for stress management i mean it's it i mean i i know because i have to juggle so many things sometimes and and always something falls out through the crack and i feel horrible um and my follow-up skills has never been like the best i i know that that's my biggest weakness and um and it but I have all these things in my head and I know I get I get them done and they constantly pulling on me. And when you take it off your, you know, of your plate. Now I, I do a, I do a checklist on, I have a folder in my notes called to do. So I just dump things in there and then I go and look at it. Uh, and, and just that, just that, like taking off your plate, it, I don't know. It it, it kind of keeps your creative juices going. It's not clogging your mind. It's it's really cool. And that's a really central point of the getting things done. So you can try to see why I end up telling people to read multiple books, like The Power of Habit, Give Me My Morning Routine, uh, Getting Things Done, Taught Me How to Use an Inbox to Process Things, and then 
uh, creating a workflow with OmniFocus taught me how to use the software program that I used. So it's three books that got me to where I am right now. And people say that books don't teach you anything. <laughs> and we'll put a uh, a link in the uh, show notes to this episode if you're interested in uh, in uh, those books. Uh, I'll, I'll link you to uh, Charles Duhigg's webpage and to um, uh, the uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done and so forth. So if you're curious and want to learn more, uh, then uh, check out our show notes. You can find those at Access dot ninja of course yay so i think we've talked plenty about new year's resolutions here <laughs> i think we'll move on to a uh, our uh, our first uh, of uh, two topics we're going to talk about here so i'm going to throw in some uh, some some transition music so one of the things i was reading on the news recently which reminded me of something else uh which was that the uh, tokyo paralympics are coming up uh the tokyo olympics and the paralympics are taking place uh in 2020 and tokyo is in japan is in the process of trying to what, what their goal is what they've said is they want this to be the most barrier-free uh olympics uh ever uh, they want to make sure that all of the athletes for the Paralympics and everybody with disabilities who are attending the Olympics and the Paralympics are able to get around and enjoy them uh, as much as any other person has. So they're they're putting a a new commitment towards accessibility. Woohoo! Go Japan! So uh, I'm going to link everyone to an article uh, titled "Tokyo Paralympics Aim to Leave Legacy of Accessibility," so you can read a little bit more about that. Although their emphasis on this article is on uh, wheelchair and physical accessibility, uh, they are working for some uh, tools specifically for low vision and blindness as well by creating a robust indoor turn-by-turn navigation system as well, which I heard about at the CSUN conference last year or the year before that. They've been working on this for quite a while now. Uh, But one of the big things they're doing is having to deal with hotels. So... You know, in Japan, they've got some rules about accessibility. You know, when we've got the Americans with Disabilities Act here in the in the U.S., uh, Japan has their own rules and regulations. But one of those rules said that every single hotel had to have at least one accessible room. But that was it, just one, in order to be compliant. And they realized, especially with the Paralympics going in, and in general, that's not enough. But especially when they're going to have an influx of wheelchair users coming in, for the Paralympics, they realize that's not that's not going to cut it. There's not going to be enough accommodations for all these athletes that are coming in. Especially in Japan, because you know everything is so narrow there because of you know just the just the the sheer amount of population. You know, things in Japan are not like huge. So one of the new regulations they're going to have is that any hotel or inn that has more than 50 rooms is going to have to have, uh, now they said at least 1% of their total rooms accessible. So if you're a 200-room place, you need to have two, 300, you need to be three. Uh, so any place that's have going under construction or being built at this point is going to uh, is going to have to increase the number of accessible wheelchair-accessible rooms that they have. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem like a huge amount, but uh, I don't know how big these uh, these hotels are, so I I don't have a good idea of what uh, of how many more rooms that's going to mean as a whole. 
yeah i don't either but but it's it's a good um you know it's a good requirement to have they're also working on you know the streets uh making sure that it you know, people will be able to get around the city with wheelchairs uh, i remember when i was visiting my family for uh over thanksgiving i was visiting i was in philadelphia visiting family and uh one of the family members was in a wheelchair due to an injury and he we had to move him around in philadelphia it was oh such a nightmare to get around in a wheelchair the sidewalks are so uneven and uh the, the buildings are so narrow and there's so many older buildings that don't have full ada compliance because they've been grandfathered in due to their age or historicals or they haven't had a major renovation uh and it became a huge nightmare uh tokyo like you mentioned everything's so narrow because they've having to fit so many people into such a small space uh i can imagine that that's going to be quite a bit quite a bit of adjustments in order to make sure that the athletes are going to be able to get around the city effectively yeah it'll be really interesting to see as you know progress happens uh we'll keep an eye on it now, what they don't talk about in this article, and I think, Rachel, you and I have talked about this before, is that they're also working on an indoor navigation system that's basically going to use eye beacons or these little Bluetooth beacons that are going to be positioned around, uh, the, uh, the, the, around the games that will give indoor navigation. Because we, we've talked about this before, the limitations of indoor turn-by-turn navigations, because GPS, for example, you need to have line of sight to satellites. The three, you need to get triangulation from three satellites. Yeah, but indoors, that doesn't work. And so they use these little Bluetooth <laughs> transmitters. Well, especially over there, I remember when I was there, um, I couldn't get internet. Like, you know, like, there is no open um, Wi-Fi's and stuff like here. It, it was like everything was secured. It was very interesting. I mean, except if you went into a like, you know, specific restaurant or cafe or whatever that you had. And but if I wanted to get just in the train or something like that, it was so difficult to get internet back then. I mean, not now. Uh, I'm sure with the Olympics coming up, there might be like you know Wi-Fi at the games itself and all that. But uh, I remember I was so frustrated. Like <laughs> I almost wanted to get somebody so hey, I can give you your internet. <laughs> one of the one of the things about this Bluetooth thing is that it's it's actually quite an installation because uh, so Bluetooth uh, they have these little Bluetooth transmitters. So there's basically these little things. They're actually about the size of a half dollar, but thicker. Closer to like maybe a poker chip, I guess, would be the closest thing I could think of. And they can position these in these right. little transmitters. And all they're doing is they're sending off a little signal with a little bit of information that's in relation to where the, the Bluetooth uh, signal actually is coming from. So like a little thing might come off and it would, it would be the one that's on the corner of 5th and 8th Street. And a little thing would, would send off a signal and, and it basically says 5th and 8th Street, 5th and 8th Street. And then when you use an app on your device that's looking for these Bluetooth signals, it hears that and it knows uh, about where that signal is coming from. And that's how it finds its location. But in order to, first of all, in order to get a proper location, you need more than one signal. Like GPS, you need three satellites that triangulate your position. It uses those three satellites to determine where you are. It can't do it with just one, it has to be three. So you need multiple Bluetooth transmitters to get a really accurate picture of where you are. So now we need more of these. And they all have about a distance of 150 feet, uh, I think, 
I could be working with some old information there, but so you need to have them spread out. But on top of that, there's lots of things that can slow down the signal because the way it knows it's a distance from your phone to the Bluetooth transmitter is how long it takes the signal, how strong the signal is basically. And if there's somebody standing between you and the signal, uh, you and the transmitter, that's, that's going to make the signal strength weaker. And so that would make it start to think maybe you're farther away because a human being is a big, someone once described it as a big bag of water <laughs> and water slows down these transmissions. And so right. the more people that are there, as you can imagine at a very, at the Olympics games and inside of Tokyo, probably a lot of people, uh, that can mess up the, uh, that can mess up the, uh, the signal and make it less powerful. Or if you're standing and the signal's coming from behind you, you are also in between the signal and right. your phone. So you need lots of these uh, in order to get a decent idea of where you are. So they are installing a ton of these sensors around and using a special app for turn-by-turn -turn navigation. Well, and, you know, I mean, from all places that could be installing technology, uh, I would be a bit skeptical, but it's Japan. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of technology, I mean, Japan is way ahead of the curve, always have been. And um, it would be very interesting to see. Actually, you know what? We should, like, go fund me. <laughs> And go cover the Olympics. Go cover the Olympics. But, that would be exciting. Yeah. But uh, I do think that, um, you know, I mean, Japanese kind of pride themselves into, you know, into perfection. And, and, uh, and, I, and, and I, will, I would be curious to see if we can get a hold of somebody that's on that planning uh, of, of that installation and all that. Because I bet they have some kind of a you know, backup plan or, or putting the sensors a little, uh, you know, above the average height, uh, of people. I, I'm one, I mean, I would be surprised if they're not tackling that issue. Some of the interesting things that they mentioned during their presentation is that they wanted to give, if it's a blind user using it, they wanted to give additional information so when you approach a, 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 a stairway, for example, it would, in addition to telling you you're approaching a stairway, it would also tell you whether or not, you know, where the handrail might be. Or if you're crossing a bridge, it would say handrail on both sides or stairs going down, stairs going up. But the one thing that they discovered, just because these are a bunch of, uh, it was a bunch of students who were putting, who were creating the prototype of this, and they mm. were building it from their perspective, is that when they tested it with the uh, with actual blind people trying it out, the thing they were surprised by is all the blind people said, too much information. I don't need all that information. I know how to get downstairs. I know, like, if I if stairs go up, I know I've, I do stairs every day of my life. I don't, uh, or, or when I'm approaching a turn, you don't need to tell me 20 feet ahead, 10 feet ahead, 5 feet ahead, now it's time to turn. Like, I don't need that much information. I get around daily. I just need to know you know, when to turn. I, I, it was just too much information. And they were thinking from their perspective that they were blindfolded, you know, what do they think they would need? But they're not used to navigating uh, around 
blind, you know, without their vision. And these people are. And so they were giving them way too much information. So they had to, based on feedback, really tone down the amount of talking the system was doing into your ear. Yeah. And I think, um, and I, I mean, I've run into that problem as a designer, right? As a test it out. Uh, I think the biggest error that most people do when they're creating something for a user is to project your own uh, assumptions into that user. And, you know, I mean, we see it happen all the time, right? When when developers used to just create their softwares, they would create like for, you know, from that standpoint, which is uh, very knowledgeable of software. And, and when you have like non-power users, that doesn't go well. So uh, the same way, you know, I'm, I'm a nav navigation pro, but there's also another issue that I think could be happening, which is they're probably testing Japanese blind uh, people and they are familiar to the landscape of Japan, which is not true per se, somebody like me that showed up there uh, the first time it took me a while to get my bearings on in the type of structure or, you know, if an American goes there, it's a little bit different. So you expect things kind of like, uh, it just happened to me while I was in Mexico, you know, bathrooms there don't make any sense. You can't expect that there'll be a paper like on the left or on the right of the sink or in the back. And, you know, that soap will always be like in the right on the left or like it didn't have a lot of sense. Like in a lot of bathrooms, there was soap and the soap was way in the end of the row, like on the wall. And it was only one. So it, uh, so everybody had to first get the soap and then find the sink that you wanted to use. And so it, it doesn't make, you know, you can't expect the same features on the restroom there that you can expect in the restroom here. And like, for example, Japan, uh, I have a blind friend actually in Japan and, you know, she's a pro talking about restrooms. I love restrooms. Um, you know, she goes to any Japanese restroom and she knows exactly what to do. To me, it's like, you're in a freaking spaceship. There is like a gazillion of buttons and things. And I have no clue what they do. Like, and I remember one time I was trying to, like, I had just arrived on the airport in Narita and I, you know, got in the, the restroom and I'm trying to find a flush button and I can't and I pushed and then all of a sudden this voice comes on and I was like, whoa, what's going on? You know, so, so also I think it's important to look from that standpoint, you're going to have an influx of people from all over the world and uh, I believe customization is key there. So you have, yes, an overload of information and maybe it's a setting thing. So for example, if you're using Microsoft uh, soundscapes, you can tell, okay, I want to know street, uh, zip code, um, like you, you, you choose how much information you want. So when you are a, a first sort of time user, you might want more info. But then as you become a pro, you don't want it. And, and I think oftentimes you have to understand the level of your user that you're testing to. And, and I'm afraid that often they forget, you know, that 
that not everybody's going to have the same level of of uh, understanding as a native Japanese blind person. And these sort of things, you'll see these type of features inside of uh, screen readers, you know, tools that are used by a variety of people, you know, with vision loss, with a variety of ability levels, like voiceover and JAWS, you can adjust the verbosity and the amount of hints that you're getting and, and how much information you're getting, because everybody's got a, a different level of need and understanding of the operating system. But you need that type of uh, scaling inside of uh, your other accessibility software as well, is what I'm hearing from you. Yes, that that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because uh, people tend to, you know, whatever, your chat users or blind people, they, they, you tend to say everybody's a user, like a blind user, it's they're all the same, but they're not. Uh, I mean, I've done extensive research on that. And uh, just like sighted people, with any software, you're going to have your power users and you're going to have the, your, you know, your first time users and, 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 and you do that, you, you, you classify those things. Um, when you, you testing a regular user, quote unquote, regular, right. But the same thing happens. You know, I think we talked about once, right. I was, uh, she chatting with a, a Google developer friend and, you know, and I was complaining about something on, on Hangouts, and and I remember very clearly that he turned around to me and said, oh, the problem is you're a power user. I said, no, that's not the problem. I said, the problem is you don't design for a blind power user. Absolutely, yeah. If you don't, yeah, the, the problem is you're too competent. I don't know. No, I mean, no, you want to do... <laughs> Not confident. That's 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 not the root. But I mean, like, there's different levels of users. I'm too like, competent. Well, like, like to to bring it into OmniFocus, the software I was talking about earlier. OmniFocus is really is considered a power user program, but um, everything can be tied to a keyboard shortcut for people like to navigate a keyboard, or everything can be used with the mouse, and you can have nice visuals, or you can choose to have more or less information visible at the same time, because that everybody is uh, using their software the same way. Not everybody is at the same level of use, and you've got to have an application that can accommodate a wide breadth of users. Correct. And, you know, and, and again, I'm big with options. I think that the problem when we are creating for somebody with a disability, uh, e even as designers, I say that all the time when I give workshop to designers, is that, you try to uh, know or assume the capability levels. And I think that, and, but we don't do that for other users. So what we really need to do is just create for any user to be able to grow and, and get better at not just, you know, we're humans when we are, toddlers you know somebody feed us but as you grow you start learning how to use your spoon and your fork and you know and, and, and as an adult you eat by yourself so i think that that's a, a good allegory to keep in mind because i feel um you know we're constantly doing things for the blind or for the wheelchair user instead of by the blind person or by the, you know, user. I think as designers, our goal is to create, to facilitate possibilities. 
One of the ironic things, this is just as someone who who teaches one-on-one how to use a lot of this accessibility software that's interesting is, um, and one of the challenges that comes from 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 this variety is you, you need to have a lot of different ways that um, you can interact with the software. And I actually have some people get confused by that. People have to ask me like, why is there so many ways to do X? Because somebody asked me a question once was like, how do I open a program this was on a windows machine it was running an older version of windows but like how do you open a program i was like well you can have a shortcut on the desktop that you can go to or you could have it into the in the status bar or you can open up the full applications list and pull from there you can hit the windows key type in the name of the application do a search to launch it or you can set up a keyboard shortcut that you can press to launch it and you're like why are there so many options it's because well, there's so many different ways people might want to interact with the computer, whether you, they're using a mouse or a keyboard, whether they're a power user and they want to assign a shortcut, shortcut key, or you're opening a program you haven't opened in a long time, so you're going to use the search feature, or you're someone who likes to organize things on the desktop. Uh, there's lots of different ways of doing things, and it's so that different users, different ability levels, different preferences can use it. Although one of the challenges of that is that uh, if you have more than one person trying to teach you, and that person has a preference. They think this is the right way of doing it. I run into this all the time with trainers. They they teach only one way because that's yeah. the way that they like. That's the way that they prefer. They don't think about uh, the fact that everyone has preferences. So when I sit down with somebody, uh, I, I interview them before we start because sometimes through that interview, I can figure out what their preferences are. I notice that this is a person that's very, very shortcut heavy. I notice they like to, because I'll ask them, how would you do this on the computer? And I, and I, and I asked them a couple of questions like, okay, so if you wanted to do this, how would you do it to get an idea about where they, what they've learned and what their preferences are? I'll even ask them like, do you think that works well? Cause I'd someone say like, I use, I use a key, you know, I, I, I go to the desktop, like there's a screen reader. They go, I go, well, I hit windows D to go to the desktop. And then I hit the first letter of the application that I want. Cause I've got a shortcut. I hit enter. I'm like, okay, well, do you think that's good? Do you like, do you, do you feel like that's quick is easy, efficient? And if they go, yes, then I know, okay, well, they're a desktop person. If they say no, then it can present them with some options. Exactly. And, and I think that's part of the issue with education too, right? Cause we all, we all have different learning styles and our brains works differently. And often we're teaching everybody the same thing and, and it doesn't sync with certain types of st- styles of learning or with certain with certain brains you know and and me i don't like overload of information for example i i usually like to go and and do it and then i don't like a lot of things telling me lots of things but when i'm in a new place i love overload of information because i'm in a you know in a completely different maybe country with things that i expect are not are not correct so you know, like or traffic light, for example, that this is super dangerous because when you're blind, they teach you one way and is the way on your country, but different different countries use different ways of you know crossing the street because a traffic light works in a different way. So I mean, you could be totally be prompt to accidents if you just assume it's the same way of where you come from. So I want to finish us up here with one more topic here because we've been going on a little bit here. And this is just something that's a bit funny. And uh, and that is recently, this is uh, uh, the movie Bird Box came out 
on Netflix, and it's resulted in a bunch of people online and online personalities doing something called the Bird Box Challenge. And the reason why we're talking about this movie is that in the are you familiar with this movie, Rachel? Yeah, I'm quite familiar. I didn't watch because it's not my type of movie, but uh, but I got a whole a whole uh, review on it, like you know, like the whole synopsis and what's it all about. Because Bird Box is basically it's a horror movie with Sandra Bullock, and in this movie, if you look at this creature, this monster of some sort, it will make you go into a violent rage and commit suicide. So in order to avoid that terrible, terrible fate, uh, the only way to survive is to, uh, in their case, uh, put on a blindfold whenever you go outside so that you do not see this thing, this creature that's out there. And so for a good portion of the movie, Sandra Bullock and the other characters are blindfolded trying to move their way around the world outside. So they can take the blindfold off when they're indoors because by some weird reasoning, the monster doesn't just come inside. It's... You don't have to see the movie. It's kind of, it's a little odd. Maybe it's like vampires. You got to invite them. Otherwise they're not allowed in. <laughs> and so, so what's happening is people as, uh, because there's a scene, you know, Sandra Bullock is blindfolded and she's running through the woods. She's trying to, uh, uh, she's sitting in a, uh, a rowboat rowing down a, a river. And at one point they even get into a car uh, and they've got the windshields all covered up and they're using the proximity sensors, like the warning messages that you send them to get on these cars that you're about to collide with something in order to try to drive down the street. So what has happened recently is these YouTubers have uh, and, and other people wanting to to make cool videos uh, have been recording themselves blindfolded and running around and uh, Netflix has issued a warning because they don't want people to get hurt. They did not mean for this to become a challenge. Oh, just recently, a 17-year-old girl from Utah crashed a pickup truck into another car trying to drive blindfolded. Oh, gosh. No one was hurt. A good thing. Um, <laughs> well, I have mixed feelings about it, and I know that some blind people are quite upset in the community. I've been hearing some, um, you know, some, that they say they're making a mockery of, of being blind. And uh, I, I don't think people are like, I, I think it's just like any of those challenges is just something that comes and somebody does and, and it snows ball. I don't think, I, I really don't think anybody's giving any thought because if they were, then you wouldn't be doing stupid stuff like that. I, I've just noticed looking at some of the challenges, uh, some people just blindfold themselves and try to get around. Uh, there's been two people trying to drive while blindfolded. Missing the point of the movie, the movie, they, they actually use proximity sensors and drive very slowly. And it's uh, and, and, and the whole point is that it's crazy dangerous. Uh, and then uh, one other group, uh, one person blindfolded themselves and had their friend hold a soccer ball down with their nose. Just like, and, and uh, the other, the other person just ran and kicked it, you know, just barely yeah. missing their face. And it seems to be the general idea is that the stunts are dangerous and, and, and reckless. And that's what makes them uh, people wanting to watch them and make them appealing. It's, it's certainly no way of representation of what it's like to be blind. And I think that's, you know, people getting confused about that, I, I think is the frustrating thing. Well, to me, you know, to me, I think it, it goes kind of deeper it's it's interesting to me because it's uh i don't know like people think that 
in general, okay? Like even uh, I have an eight-year-old that comes around sometimes, a, 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 the daughter of a friend, and sometimes I'm doing something and she goes like, you can't do that. And I'm like, why? Because she's like, because you can't see. And I know she's not meaning any wrong. That's what she hears from, you know, from, from who knows, from TV, from her teachers, from, you know, uh, I think they, uh, she talks about me in school and probably people say, oh, she can't do this or that, right? So even though she's around me and she says all that I can do and, and her mom is my friend and totally believes on my abilities, right? She still has this idea and she knows me since she's five. So you would think that that wouldn't cross her mind, but it does because that's what people think and say. So, and, and let's face it, I'm a professional. I'm blind for what, uh, 40, uh, 36 years, right? So you could say I'm a pro and, and, uh, but people still think that, you know, they don't think about the amount of years I've been blind and all the things I've done with, but then all of a sudden they put a blindfold and they think that they can be reckless. And somehow that is funny, right? Somehow that is, it's, uh, I don't know, exciting and, and capable. I, I don't really, I would love to actually ask people kind of like, what what is that they feel or, or think, or if they're thinking anything, maybe they're not, maybe it's just like, yeah, let's like, you know, recreate some horror in, in my life or something. I don't know. The one thing funny from watching it is that their the characters are spending a lot of time blindfolded in, and nobody at any point picks up a cane or tries to use any of the alternative techniques that a blind person would use. And you'd think, because they were, they were hiding out for a very, very, very long time. I think like a, like a year or two, maybe even multiple years. And I was like, you never thought to try one of these. The only thing they did is they ran like a line of, I think it was a rope from one location to another so they could hold it while walking down, walking from like one building to another, I think. And they'd use a lot of like having a piece of string and then walking and walking someplace and then using the string to try to find their way back. And I'm like, well, there are people who do this. Who, this is their life every day. And I don't see a bunch of blind people running string around everywhere uh, so they can find their way back from where they came from or and I see, you know, not a single cane. That's what got me. I was like, like, like everybody knows about the cane. But I mean, you see it. I mean, why isn't that the symbol of somebody being blind is the white cane? So like, why didn't you grab a stick or, or something, you know? I mean, how about echolocation? I mean, you know, blind people have been using it for years. And in fact, um, I can't remember now, but there's been some movies where, you know, the hero like temporarily loses sight or because something happened. Like the first thing they do is is, is fashion a, a cane out of something, you know, to to feel their way around. So, yeah, I think uh, I, I have mixed feelings about it. I, I think it's funny. Uh, I, you know, I watched some of the YouTube and I think it's hilarious. Uh, but but also another side of me is like, whoa, like this is dangerous for one thing, right? It's physically dangerous. But then, uh, you know, I was thinking like, how about somebody blindfolded and decide to go, um, you know, cross the street? Like, like I've been run over, like a lot of blind people get run over and, and that can change your life forever, right? Uh, but, and then there's that other more philosophical side of, 
wow, this is dangerous in so many levels because of what we're propagating about, you know, capability. It's like, it's like they, they're all doing reckless things because it's kind of cool. But then when we come to really dealing with a, a, a actually very capable blind person, professional, who knows what they're doing uh, in the daily life, you still look around and say, oh, they're not capable, right? But but you think that being reckless, but you think that blindfolded in yourself with zero experience, you can be reckless because, I don't know, are you capable or or, or, or nothing is even crossing people's minds. I don't really understand. It'll, it's interesting. And so it's been kind of a, amusing to watch, although I wanted to talk about it, you know, sooner than later, because I feel like all these trends, it will be over in a matter of weeks and no one will remember it, uh, probably. <laughs> and, you know, and that, and that is the sad part, because, I mean, a lot of those challenges you remember the one that like you would take like the selfies and like everybody would freeze and weird positions and take a selfie. I think there was one of a backpack challenge. I mean, there's been so many and, 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 you know, they go away or the ice bucket, right? I think that's the one that really started the whole thing. Yeah. At least uh, that one was for charity. <laughs> and that one was funny. I mean, it was hilarious, but, um, and it wasn't that dangerous, but you know, but then when it comes to, and you inflicted yourself, right? It wasn't like anybody coming and doing it to you without you knowing. But uh, but in this case, I think that this challenge has a deeper, you know, a deeper meaning to it that it would be really cool if we discussed it and actually didn't forget. And it's not about, you know, I'm not that kind of person that feels offended and it's like, oh my God, you're impersonating a blind person and this is so bad. No, it's not that. In fact, uh, I had a blind friend over in the weekend, so we went bowling and we actually took some videos. We might put it up as the bird uh, bird box challenge, but uh, but that's not, that's not, um, my point is that you don't do it. I think it, it's, it would be a great um, opportunity to, to talk about the perception of blind capabilities. Uh, you know, I, I think that would be a great opportunity for tease that challenge for that and that hopefully people wouldn't forget. So I think that's all we I wanted to have us talk about today and it's getting close to lunchtime and I'm getting hungry. So what do you think about wrapping this up? <laughs> Yeah, let's let's wrap it up and um and we'll see you all next time. All right, everybody. You all take care. Uh you can find our show notes and more information about our uh, podcast here at access.ninja. That's access.ninja. And uh, you know, be good to each other, all right?